Hello there, and welcome back to Beats by Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany, your host for the show. We're so glad you came back. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, check out episode one to learn more about who we are. But a brief summary, we are both certified clinical transplant social workers who specialize in all things heart transplant and LVAD, also known as left ventricular assist device. Our goal is to talk all the things transplant and LVAD, from the social work perspective and to bring the human element back into the world of transplant for our fellow social workers and our patients, as well as professionals who may stumble in. As a reminder, we are social workers, but we are not your social worker. So we hope topics discussed here will lead you to further discussions within your own transplant team. Hello there, and welcome back to Beats by Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany, your host for the show. We're so glad you came back. But let's start off with a vitals check. So, Tiffany, on a scale of the devil's attic, which as we know is hotter than hell, to the cool spring of the Swiss Alps. Where do you find yourself today? Ooh, you know, if you would have asked me that question yesterday, I probably would have said I was like in the peak of the devil's ad- attic. Um, today, I'm doing a little bit better though. Okay. Um, I'd say I'd probably more like the devil's front porch. It's a little cooler, it's a little bit of a breeze. Mm. Doing a, I'm doing okay. So we have room for growth and development, but we also have room for rest and recovery. It is true. Okay. It's true. Same question back to you though. How are you today? I am doing wonderful. I find myself on vacation. It is great. We are in person, which is always so exciting. We get to catch up and we had an awesome lunch. So I think that we're doing pretty good today. You know, and I will say, that's something that we should probably tell our listeners. Is this is the first time that we're actually recording in person. Yes. We've never done this before, so we're not really sure how it's going to go. Well, uh, not only that, we've had every intention of recording in person before, because this isn't the first time we've actually been in person, but it's actually the first time we've executed that plan. So It's true. We get, we get caught up in conversation, and we're, we are the true social work nerds that then end up talking about all the things, social work, professional life as well, but um, don't, yeah, don't get to execute our plan of recording. Yeah. So today's quote is when disaster strikes, the time to prepare has passed. And that is from, you're going to have to help me out here. I believe it's Stephen Kairos. Cyros. Cyros. Apologize, Stephen. We probably aren't pronouncing it correctly. But the important thing to remember here is the reason that we're bringing up this particular quote for this episode is because what we're going to be talking about today is emergency preparedness with a transplant or an LVAD and what that means for our patients and ourselves as members of the interdisciplinary team. I agree. And and it actually kind of correlates with our vitals check of talking about how hot it is. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a good time because we know this is also a, a time of year where there's hurricanes where there is extreme heat and with extreme heat can sometimes come rolling blackouts. Yeah. Um, tornado season. I think natural disaster um, isn't always just the things that we think of though. I agree. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's one of the benefits of talking about it is thinking about the things we don't think about. Mm-hmm. Honestly, you, you might have an LVAD patient that comes to me in Arizona for some, for instance, and they say, well, we don't have natural disasters, so we don't really have to worry about that, right? Mm-hmm. But we do have the extreme heat. And yeah. sometimes, depending on where you are, depending on your power grid, that could mean a, a rolling blackout. 
or just in general, the power lines go out. And if I didn't talk about that, it could be a disservice. Mm -hmm. Or we have a lot of snowbirds. So I have a lot of patients that come from the Midwest. And in the Midwest, we know the freeze, the extreme the extreme freeze. You guys experienced that in Houston, if I'm not mistaken, not too long ago, right? Mm -hmm. And it was unexpected. You guys weren't prepared for things of that nature. Absolutely. And that was one of the big things that was very difficult about the freeze in Houston was we found ourselves without power with no idea when power was going to be turned back on, but also millions of people's pipes burst in their home. And so it impacted their ability to access water, access an ability to clean their space, cook food, so many different things. It was just basic necessities that were not accessible. But that not only impacted the patients, it impacted the staff. Our staff found Mm -hmm. themselves without power, without water. And how can we check on our patients if we don't even have access to the basic resources ourselves too? It's very true. And so you know, just to bring it back, we always like to have our citations and our data, right? Of course. And so according to WHO, uh, the World Health Organization, uh, natural disasters include earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanic eruptions and landslides and hurricanes and floods and wildfires and heat waves and droughts. And they have an immediate impact on human lives and often result in the destruction of the physical, biological, and social environment of the affected people. Thereby having a long-term impact on their health. And so, I mean, think about the things that I just mentioned. Would you have thought about a volcano? No, no, I can't say that I would, but we don't exactly have many volcanoes in Texas that I'm aware of. Now, please, audience, correct me if I'm wrong on that. It's true. However, we may have transplant patients that get transplanted at our centers and then go back to an area where there are volcanoes. Mm -hmm. We have, I mean, unfortunately, Hawaii doesn't have heart transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, Hawaii, again, if I'm not mistaken, does not have lung transplant either. I think they might have kidney, but they're coming more inland to do those types mm. of transplants, but then they go back to their home. And and even being a post-transplant recipient, we have to think about the impact of natural disasters mm-hmm. and getting your medications even. And so emergency preparedness and disaster planning is obviously crucial for safety and well-being of all individuals. That includes people with a solid organ transplant as well as an LVAD. And so one of the things with LVAD that's really important to remember is that an LVAD can't get wet. It can't be immersed in water. It's the mm-hmm. same thing that happens to your cell phone if you go swimming with it. It impacts the access to power and how it functions. And when that is a life-sustaining device for you... What does that mean if you find yourself in an area that's flooded? But then to take it even further, we think about flooding and not getting the battery wet. But what does it mean for the freeze? Mm. These are lithium-ion batteries. And so that's going to have an impact on the temperatures that it could be exposed to. And so heat, leaving your equipment in a car can actually have negative impact on your batteries in a hot summer or in a freezing cold winter because vehicles are obviously going to make that type of temperature worse. Right. Well, and, and bring it even again, we like to bring steps further. Um, when we think about the pre-phase, if you are a pre-transplant individual and you are going through a natural disaster and that might require evacuation, what does that mean for being in, in, the radius and a proximity to your institution, right? Mm -hmm. 
So I have I have a fun fact for you, Kristen. Okay. Um, did you know, according to FEMA, households that they surveyed, only 48% of those households actually had an emergency plan. And that's people that don't even have a medical condition going on. No. Like 48% have an emergency plan. That's, that's so crazy to think about because, I mean, I know I take it for granted. I can't say I have an emergency plan, but I mean, I'm also not chronically ill. And so... But I guess it's one of those automatic assumptions where people that are chronically ill automatically assume, okay, I need an emergency plan or the people that are working with them. And that may not be the case. So let me ask you this then, Uh, being an individual that works with the chronically ill, do you talk to your patients about having emergency plans? I mean, if I'm being completely honest, I didn't at first. I wasn't necessarily aware that that was something when I first started in this line of work that I needed to be assessing for my patients. It wasn't until Hurricane Harvey hit in 2017 that half of the city or more was underwater. And I found patients with absolutely no resources or ability to rectify their house. Um, Many years went by where patients had mold, mildew in their house waiting for FEMA relief. Mm -hmm. So it was really that type of circumstance that impacted me personally and knowing I needed to, to modify my assessment Mm -hmm. and where are you going to go? How are you going to access your meds? And it, and it essentially built from there. Yeah. Well, and, and similar, um, year prior to that, when I was working in Florida and I had, uh, and I always get them too, because they happen back to back Matthew and then Irma, or Irma than Matthew, but um, when that hit, it hit the area that I was working. Interestingly enough, CMS actually requires all transplant centers to have an emergency preparedness plan. And that was implemented in September of 2016. So it was very close to around that time when, when one of the big first hurricanes, and, and I know there was other big hurricanes sure. that happened, but I'm speaking personally, the big hurricane in my area that... Um, I actually, at that time, had volunteered at a uh, emergency shelter within the area. And so what we did, we were one of the medical emergency shelters. Mm-hmm. And we realized it was chaos there. And so I came at the very end. And then the next year, when the next hurricane hit, um, we were there from the opening of it. Mm. And we actually had we had a post-lung patient. We had a pre-heart patient. We actually, no, we had a few pre, pre-lung patients as well that were at the institution there for their evaluation. Mm. And they ended up coming to the emergency shelter. And so we had kind of created one of my colleagues that happened to work in transplant with me. Mm-hmm. Shout out. You know who you are, JK. Um, we created like almost a little like transplant and organ failure section yeah. so they could be cut off because it was all the individuals in the community. Yeah. As it should be, all individuals in the community that had a medical condition were at this shelter because we had the generators. Right. And so we had inotrope patients there. Mm. We had LVAD patients there. We had post-transplant patients there. We had pre-transplant patients there. Because they had access to power. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we had to figure out how do you make a sterile environment for sterile dressing changes Mm. for the LVAD? But also for the inotropes, because there's there's a component to making sure there's a clean environment when you're yeah cleaning out that that pump area, and so it, it was like you said very eye opening in that aspect. 
but then did some research, of course, because, you know, I can't mm-hmm. help myself. Sure, right? of course. Uh, and that's where we find out the final rule of CMS. And then it's it's saying that all transplant centers actually have to mm. have a plan for emergency. Mm-hmm. And so it's part of what they look at when they're coming out to do our CMS reviews. Mm-hmm. And that has just expanded. So it was implemented in 2016. It became effective November of 2016. And then it's gone through changes, of course, and an upgrade. But any hospital essentially that has a transplant center associated with it has to have a plan in place for that. Any hospital has to have a plan in place. Any dialysis center, actually, according to these rules, have to have a plan in place for emergency preparedness. Yeah. So if emergency strikes, what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it can, I'm glad that it continues to evolve and continues to be called, but it's now called the Emergency Preparedness Final Rule. Um, no, big, exciting title. But. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot of components that are taken for granted or um, not necessarily considered when you think about that type of a, a fragile population or mm-hmm. a patient population that has such unique medical needs. So for example, when you're working with disaster relief programs, the most common types of chronic illnesses that are going to be factored in are going to be your oncology patients that are immunocompromised because of chemo treatment or something along those lines. But then you're also going to have the dialysis patients. A lot of times relief workers are going to be familiar with dialysis and the impact that lack of sterile water is going to impact that. Um, ventilator dependent patients and having access to power for oxygen and their ventilator power, that sort of thing. But it's not until you actually get into the weeds of the needs for an LVAD and a transplant patient that it seems as if that population is oftentimes missed in the entire uh, equation of Mm -hmm. certain things. And so of course, me being more LVAD centric, uh, I think of things along the lines of medications and medication supplies. And so you have to have a sterile environment to do your driveline dressing change so that you can, you know, reduce your risk of a driveline infection, but also blood thinners. Uh, For example, I had a patient and um, of course, not in any way violating HIPAA, but this patient in particular actually presented on their uh, their experience during Hurricane Harvey mm-hmm. at a um, an LVAD manufacturing company conference because it was so profound. So what ended up happening was this particular patient found themselves surrounded by water, had no way to, the mm-hmm. roads were completely flooded, all the vehicles around them were completely flooded, they had no way to get out of their neighborhood, and they were running out of their blood thinner. Mm-hmm. And the, the important thing to know there is that if you have a patient that is on an LVAD, they have to have that blood thinner in order to prevent a clot from forming inside of the LVAD. And so what do you do if you're flooded inside your home and you have no way to get anywhere to get the blood thinner? Well, what ended up happening with this particular patient is a neighbor had a kayak mm. and um, the neighbors all got involved, put the patient in the kayak and the neighbors took turns getting him in the kayak and wading him down the water so that they could take him to a place where an ambulance could then take him to the hospital because all of the pharmacies were flooded as well. And it was, uh, it was a complete, uh, it, it took the entire community to get him to the hospital so that there was not a clot that would form in the LVAD and, and potentially run the risk of ending his life. Wow, that gave me chills. Yeah. You know, and and it just speaks to the power of community. Yeah. Which, you know, mark that down. That's an episode we should do at some point. I agree. But it is, 
just thinking of things that you wouldn't normally think about. Right. And, you know, I'll say when I went through what I did with the hurricanes in Florida, when the city actually built the plans for emergency preparedness, the transplant center wasn't there. Because we hadn't had a hurricane that had come close to that point. Mm. And so they didn't account for that. And then this hit. And what what's extremely incredible, I'll say, and especially in this, is that because I was part of the emergency response team for, for my institution at that time, we had, we had social workers on there, which I think it's cool. Yeah. But the fact that I got deployed into the emergency shelter, but then they said they didn't need me. And so I went and evacuated Mm -hmm. because my family wanted me to, but I then got called back in Mm. and I went there and then I realized that we needed this. And I was actually able to be part of discussions with our community Mm -hmm. with our city of planning of what happens if this comes again Mm -hmm. and being able to implement that. And then the next year, unfortunately it did happen again Mm. and they deployed us to that emergency shelter right away. We were one of the only emergency shelters at that time that I'm aware of that had social workers there because you're like social workers. Yeah. And, and it was for our transplant patients, but honestly it was, we ended up working with all the community patients and some of those community patients have never had interactions with social workers before. Wow. And so there was that fear, that anxiety Mm -hmm. over being a patient that, that had a special need that needed to go to a medical needs shelter. Right. And, and so we were there helping out with that. We had individuals that were there because of their mental health diagnoses in the community. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to keep that at bay there was just, it was, it was really incredible, but it was also shows how social work impacts on that macro level. Mm-hmm. And, and it shows, you know, one of the things with UNOS and CMS, you know, specifically puts in their requirement, their tagline for social work, that we should be part of community efforts to raise awareness on organ. Right. Right. And, and so that right there was Ties doing it. That. Mm-hmm. And, I was looking out for all the patients as a whole, but really that specialty at that moment and thinking about what happens. And so I brought it back to of the patients because, for instance, my center is a destination center. So we have patients mm-hmm. that come from all over the world, the country, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a patient that's never experienced a hurricane. Yeah. And they're like, what do I do? What is this? And no family in the area. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so making that part of your evaluation, no matter what part of the country that you're in, I think is very important. In fact, when we had Jayco come out to evaluate our LVAD center a couple of years ago, I do it while I'm in Arizona here. I have an emergency plan put into my LVAD evaluations. Yeah. And they actually highlighted that. Mm -hmm. They called that out and said, wow, what made you start doing that? And that is something that could be considered perhaps a best practice. Yeah. You know, it's not on Jayco's website or anything like that, but they said to that point of that's something that really we all should be doing. But if you take it a step further, one of the goals in social work, especially in the world of LVAD and transplant is always to assess on an ongoing basis, the quality of life for the patient. Mm -hmm. And that can tie into that because if you have a patient that is not prepared for a natural disaster or is not prepared for an emergency, whether it's man-made or nature-based, that is going to impact their quality of life, their access to resources, their access to community. And so that is part of that all-encompassing assessment. 
And that's what makes it important. But there's so many different factors into that. Just going back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, it's an immunocompromised population. They're at a much greater risk. And so hygiene and personal safety is extremely important. But uh, unfortunately, shelters are in a crisis mentality, in a crisis Mm -hmm. mode. They're not, they, they are worried about cleanliness to the extent that their resources allow them to be worried about it. But but as with anything on a macro level, there is a gap. There are people that fall through the cracks. Yes. And unfortunately, medically fragile people are the ones that usually fall through those cracks. But then also standing water. I mean, that was one of the big issues with Harvey in Houston was that the water took forever to recede. And it was very, like it was bacteria ridden and mm-hmm. very unclean. And it caused a lot of mold and mildew. And if you have an LVAD patient who is is eventually going to be listed for transplant and their home now has mold and mildew and they don't have resources because all their money is going towards taking care of their medical needs. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for their candidacy for a transplant? These are all the ways that the, the community at large doesn't necessarily have the resources yet in order to accommodate these medically fragile patients. Great. I agree. And I think to that point too, is when we think about some of these these government resources that are out there, these emergency preparedness organizations, they they are what we have. Mm-hmm. They're they're I am appreciative that they exist, but they don't take into consideration our population specifically. And so we think about even like generators, mm-hmm. right? Generators are not cheap, and not every place needs to have one. Not every place is at a requirement, right? But if you don't, what happens? And so where's the grants for that? Mm-hmm. You know, I think you and I have had that conversation before, Kristen, of the grants for, I think that was early on in, in our discussions <laughs> yeah. when we, you know, first it got introduced to each other of where's the grants for generators and how do we get that going? Because we even think our oxygen patients, you know, we talk, we're, we've been talking a lot about LVAD, but what about our oxygen dependent patients? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and especially pre Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden those oxygen companies, you know, we talk about anticoagulation and getting the pharmacies and pharmacies, I think for, for a whole, even our immunosuppressants, because your normal pharmacies don't necessarily have that just kind of stockpiled, but our oxygen companies. And if you can't get oxygen to your patient and you don't have power and, for your concentrator, right? And so you don't have your E-tanks and now you don't have power mm-hmm. for your concentrator. What happens then? But I also had one of our pharmacists in uh, in our institution bring something up that I didn't think of honestly until recently was the the just the simple difference of a pharmacy versus a twenty four hour pharmacy mm-hmm. that not only I mean not every pharmacy is one that the pharmacy side is open 24 hours. And so if you have a storm coming or you have something where you need to uh, get extra medication or you run low on medication and you lack resources, the 24 hour pharmacy is usually going to be the one that's more, more accessible in terms of having the medications on hand. Mm -hmm. Their stock is different than a typical pharmacy is what was explained to me. Now, of course, I'm not the uh, content expert for that, but I think it's worth investigating, especially for our listeners who uh, want to know about the resources in their area that might open a door to ask more questions. Agreed. And agreed in the fact of it brings up a good point when you know that an emergency is going to come. Yeah. So there's some times where we don't. For tornadoes, I lived in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. You heard the siren. You saw the skies, but you heard the siren very shortly before the tornado was coming your way. Sure. Right? And it doesn't necessarily, you maybe have an hour. 
Mm. The the and maybe more. Okay, I don't want to you know get angry listeners being like we have more. But <laughs> we talk about hurricanes. We know that it's coming. Yeah. Yes, we don't know where it's going to hit because we've all seen those paths of spaghetti arms. But we know that something's coming our way. Uh, a, a freeze warrant. Hey, be careful. Next Thursday, it's going to be temperatures, right? And so I think there's also something we said of don't be stubborn. Mm-hmm. If it is time to evacuate, do it beforehand. If it if it's time to call your pharmacy to get extra medications, right? To refill, um, to talk to your insurance company about hey, I need a refill early. That does take some extra paperwork, but it can happen. Mm-hmm. And so it's perhaps putting that into place so we don't run into a situation where disaster is happening in those times where we have plans. We don't always, the wildfires, the tornadoes, the, the, all of a sudden right. it rained more than we anticipated it. Yeah. But if we know that something's happening, isn't it better to be prepared than wait it out and see if it's actually going to hit us? That's my, my thoughts at least. My own opinions, I'll say. Sure. And that's what this is all about, is being free people of the United States and sharing our experience. But uh, to that point, um, that's the other thing, too, is you waiting it out can only get you so far. I mean, we learned that in the freeze in Houston. None of us expected in the city of Houston to have for it to or in the state of Texas, for that matter, for it to have the ramifications that it did. And so does that mean that you cry wolf and you run and freak out every single time there's a potential emergency? Not necessarily. You don't have to. I mean, there's not it doesn't mean that you have to be alarmist. But if there is a risk that is predictable, then work with what you have control over. You have control over calling your pharmacy. You have control of, as a social worker to call your patients and check on them within your workload. You have the, so I think the takeaway here is we cannot control what uh, disasters are going to occur. Mm-hmm. We can predict that disasters will occur. We just don't know where and we don't know when. And so work with what's within your control to be proactive instead of reactive, to give you and your patients, or if you find yourself listening and you are a patient, give yourself and your family the best possible chance of the least amount of exposure to an additional risk. I agree 100%. And some people out there, though, may be saying, well, I'm on the waiting list. And if I evacuate, I won't get my transplant. I won't have the potential because I'm out of the radius, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that also talks about communication and the importance of it. Yeah. Um, Letting your transplant center know. There's some transplant centers that have a protocol that, and LVAD centers actually, especially, that have a protocol that they will call their patients to find, hey, this is happening. Mm -hmm. Where are you going to be? What is your location? Things like that. But it is also, going back to that what's in your control, on the patient too. And mm-hmm. so patients that are listening, don't wait it out. Don't be stubborn. Have that communication with your transplant center, with your LVAD center. I'm going to be here. Um, and the thing is, is if you if you don't evacuate because you're waiting for that transplant, unpopular, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Okay. Um, if you stay in a location and ambulances can't get to you and you have a medical emergency and you don't make it mm-hmm. versus if you evacuate and you don't get that call for transplant, 
you're you're weighing two different risks, right? You have the risks of mm-hmm. getting stuck in a situation that could be um, disastrous to the point of death. Yeah. Where your end stage organ failure and have this, the, the risk of death. But also taking that a step further, there are the possibilities that an, an inclement weather situation might impact accessibility to organ offers. Because if there is flooding, then that does mean that ambulances can't get to the donor. Or if they have to utilize a jet to get to the donor at a different location, Mm -hmm. is it safe to fly in those situations? And so there's much more in the equation than just the patient's decision when it comes to an organ offer and what impact that inclement weather has on that situation. I agree. And I'm glad you said it because I felt like I was already saying too much. No, you're okay. uh, In that, because I do, I think that's where that communication comes into place too, because if if you call your transplant center, maybe they're not going to call everybody and say, hey, we're putting our, we're putting our center on hold right now because yeah. of this, but saying, Hey, what, what's realistically is a chopper going to go up? Mm-hmm. Is, is the ambulance going to get to all the different areas? Is, is it a state affected to where, unless it happens within that institution mm-hmm. and you're able to get to that institution, unless the donor is at the institution that you're going to get transplanted at, but I will share a, a fun story here to okay. kind of wrap it all up. Right. So, this might be a repeat story for anybody that attended SCSW, where I actually presented, fun fact, on emergency preparedness. But in doing my research, ah, this story, it was an incredible story of there was a patient that was listed for transplant and they were hospitalized. So they were in the hospital waiting. And this was actually in when Katrina hit. Mm. Okay, so okay. this this is a story of, of being in New Orleans, and I might not tell it all right, so I apologize in advance. I'm going to be very general on it. Um, the individual is waiting for transplant at the hospital. The hospital had to evacuate because of where it was located within Katrina. And so this individual had to get moved, mm. and they needed this organ. This was not a quality of life. This was, this was they were hospitalized while waiting for this organ. Mm. And so they had to take them off of machines that they were on and they had to have hand machines happening. So there was ventilators involved and there had to be hand ventilation to get the patient to the loading dock, to get into an ambulance, to get over to another hospital that had power. And they got transplanted from that hospital. Mm -hmm. They got brought to another hospital that was a transplant center and, and it just, even still talking about it, like I wasn't part of it. I I just read this story and it was just crazy amazing, but it speaks to the power of even our community as transplant community. And healthcare workers. It is not a competition in Mm -hmm. certain, yes, we have our data and yes, we're the best. We have the best rates of this and that. And that is something to be proud of. But when you are in a situation such as this, it's coming together and it's saying it's not about the numbers. It's not about the competition. It's about this life right here. Yeah. Hey, can you take this patient? And they did. And that patient got transplanted and that the community banding together and the transplant community banding together yeah. is what, what also is so important in all of this. I love it. So really to summarize to today's episode is, As social workers and coordinators, nurses, anyone in the interdisciplinary team, 
we strongly encourage you to incorporate emergency preparedness and emergency planning in your assessment, specifically the psychosocial assessment. That w- that's regardless of if you live in an at-risk area or not. It's If there was something that was thrown at you that you didn't plan for, whether man-made or God-made or uh, universe-made or whatever higher power you choose to believe or not believe in, what is your plan? But then also be prepared to have evacuees and be on the receiving end of those evacuees and be having a trauma-informed approach and how trauma can be a, a huge component of displacement and the impact of a natural disaster and losing everything that you have and what that may mean for your patient population. But then also to the patients, don't wait for the disaster to hit to decide if you're going to evacuate or not. Have a plan in place when the skies are sunny and when things are nice. Because if you wait for the problem to happen, then you will, or what is the saying? If you, if you wait for the disaster, you're already unprepared. Yes. So that's really our takeaways. We are so glad that you joined us for this episode and we hope that it really helps all of you out there. Um, but with our closing remarks, do you have any beatbox moments? Tiffany? Mm. You know, I I just, I love patients. <laughs> That's a beatbox moment. I got to work with a patient this week. And, you know, we're struggling with some things. And it was just going back to the core of remembering why we do the work that we do. Right. And remembering that we got to take a step back sometimes and look at it from the patient's perspective. I gave a presentation to my nurse coordinators and it was it was a great opportunity because I was able to talk to them too about the work that we do and just re- reiterating that as Kristen has once said, and I use this all the time now, frustrated patients or frustrating patients are frustrated themselves. Mm-hmm. And so just remembering that when someone's frustrated, when someone's having a difficult time, what is the root of that? problem and right. remembering that and it's just gonna be so it can be fun I don't know social work's fun I like it yeah. I, I'm inclined to agree um and you Christian uh my beatbox moment is just to be here with you I'm so excited you are a powerhouse of a social worker I'm always inspired by you and so I love when we're in the same space and it's just so freaking cool to finally get to record with you so I am glad that for those of you who uh, obviously can't see what we're doing, um, it is so cool to be in the same room, but we decided to both wear red lipstick for the uh, the occasion. So, sure did. Yeah. Sure I might have pressured her into it, but that is okay. Who she... knows? Maybe we'll take a little photo and post it on our little Insta. Maybe. I'll get the ring light out if you do. Oh, that's so <laughs> basic. I love it. All right. Well, oh, hey. hey, one more thing that's exciting. Let's hear it. Um, we're excited to see any of our listeners that are social workers at STSW next month. No? Absolutely. The Society for Transplant Social Workers is having their annual conference. It's always in October. And this year it is going to be in the beautiful San Diego. Mm-hmm. And I think it is going to be a wonderful, wonderful conference. Oh, the lineup is amazing. Yeah, it really is. Wait, did I see your name once? Twice. twice three times? A lady. Three times, I think. No, twice. I submitted two, uh, three abstracts, but only three times. Well, I sure should hope not, because I only have two PowerPoints. Well, (laughs) work that out. Yeah, uh, but no, I did submit three abstracts. I only got accepted for two. 
So I think we should look at that program. We and should make look sure. at that program and uh, see who's all on there. Oh, dear God, I'm going to need more lipstick. Okay, well, have a wonderful day. And we look forward to the next episode with all of you guys. Don't forget to like, subscribe, all the things that help us get more access to listeners and the people that need to hear this message and learn something from it. And we're a community. So please reach out to us. If there's anything in here that we said that you're like, yeah, that doesn't sound right. And I learned something different. This is an open conversation. Yes. So we would love to hear from you. This is how we learn. We're not perfect either. And we're we're all imperfect people learning to navigate an imperfect world and imperfect situations. So at the end of the day, we're all here to help one another out. 100%. Awesome. So, hey, take care. Be safe out there and plan for disasters. Bye. Bye. The information shared on this podcast comes from two certified clinical transplant and mechanical circulatory support social workers. The views and opinions expressed are our own and not affiliated with any specific institution or organization, but to the community of transplant and MCS social work at large. Beats by Social Work, Tiffany and Kristen and affiliated guests and programs expressly disclaim any responsibility and shall have no liability for any damages, loss, injury, or liability whatsoever suffered as a result of your reliance on the information contained in this podcast or in any media. And none of the persons and entities noted above endorse specifically any tests, treatment, or procedures mentioned on the show. Our goal is to provide you with the most accurate information in the most respectful way. However, we are human and we ask for grace and accountability. If we say something you feel is incorrect or inappropriate, please tell us so we can correct ourselves and work to be better. Do not ignore inaccuracies or hold your feelings in. The only way to learn and ensure we do not make the same mistakes twice is to be made aware. That being said, our goal is to share information and to connect with our audience. But this is a new concept and we may fall short at times. So please be patient and respectful when you do call us out.